Blog Talk Radio. February 1st, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I see a number of the usual people joining me over here in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio. If you go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you can see I've got the title of today's show is Half a Loaf Better Than None. And uh, this title was inspired by a tweet that I've embedded into the program notes. Again, go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com to check out the program notes that I have for today's show. I think I have a rather good collection of notes just to give you a good breadth of information about the topics that I want to talk about today. In fact, I have not mined the depths of all of the items in these notes. So some of them are, you know, we're going to be skimming the surface. And I suggest if you are interested in looking at more, that you'll delve into these more later. But like I said, at the top, you can see the tweet that inspired. And there was a a little conversation between Brandy Barnett, Professor Randy Barnett, and Timothy Sandifer of the Goldwater Institute they were talking about the uh, you know, Supreme Court pick, Gorsuch, and um, saying, in effect, at the end, and we'll talk about why, that with him, you're getting half a loaf, that there's some good aspects, and their conclusion ends up being about what my conclusion is. He's about as good as you could expect out of Trump, probably out of any Republican today. In fact, what I hear is that he had been the top of the list for any GOP president to nominate. So not that bad. There are some problems with him. We're going to talk about some of the problems, but there's some good stuff as well, maybe about as good as you can expect. And I I think the half a loaf metaphor, I guess, is, you know, it's the basis of a saying, but of course the saying is not really based on the loaf of bread so much as just in life, you know, is half a loaf better than none. They always say half a loaf is better than none. Is it really? And with Gorsuch, maybe we'd say, okay, it is. Maybe. You know, again, I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Is it is it good to have someone who is as mixed as he is appointed to the Supreme Court? If he's about as good as we can expect right now, should we just go ahead and be happy with that or not? You can call me, you know, call in and tell me what you think about that. But the other thing that I think the half a loaf saying applies to is 
the immigration order, the executive order about immigration. Some people are calling it an immigration ban. In fact, I guess Trump has gone around calling it an immigration ban as well, and apparently that's not the right thing to call it, so we could get into semantics about it. But let's call it an executive order concerning immigration and say that at best you're getting half a loaf there. That's kind of the consensus based on what I've heard from your own. And then also there's some great commentary from Tim Sandifer as well. In that context, is half a loaf better than nothing? Or, in fact, maybe we'd be better off if Trump had left this issue alone. Those are the two biggies that I want to talk about. We're also going to talk about kind of that side issue of whether the acting attorney general, Yates, did the right thing in refusing to defend this executive order and also, um, you know, was Trump justified in firing her and all, all of that, you know, kind of secondary issue to the executive order. And I've got some other things, too. So, as I said, go to DontLetItGo.com. That is where I've got all of these program notes. And thanks to those of you who have tipped me off with articles and other things for that. The number to call is 760 760- Eight 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 five eight one seven. Again, that's seven six zero eight 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 five eight one seven. And if you do want to talk, make sure to press the one button and let me know that you're actually in the queue to either ask a question, make a comment, do some commentary. I'm hoping to hear from Attorney James Valiant during this show today as well to talk about the Gorsuch appointment. And then also there's the um, the issue of is there going to be the nuclear option employed to try to, uh, you know, put push him through? Should there be a filibuster? What do you get out of a filibuster of a Supreme Court appointee today? There was some discussion about that that Randy Barnett was having out there on Twitter. And as I understood, he thought that if you do have this filibuster, really the only people that you're going to end up blocking are people who are more originalists who might be more likely to overturn the bad rulings. So there's, you know, pragmatic arguments being made about that. But as I said, check out the program notes, call in. If you want to talk about these topics, 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. So as I said, go to the program notes and we have, first of all, in those notes underneath the, the wonderful tweet, the half a loaf tweet, an article by Ben Shapiro over at the Daily Wire. Ben Shapiro is another person I always like to follow and, and see what he thinks about something. This article was passed on by Mark Tickman. And Ben Shapiro, as big a critic of Trump as he is, seems to be happy about this pick. He writes, during the 2016 election cycle, Donald Trump spent an inordinate amount of time on the campaign trail, promising to fill Justice Scalia's vacant seat with someone of like judicial philosophy and record. He says, I was highly skeptical. In fact, I declared with misguided confidence that there was, quote, zero shot. And he puts a link showing, you know, where he was wrong. Zero shot that Trump would appoint a conservative. He says, I couldn't be happier to declare I was dead wrong. President Trump kept his promise to appoint a textualist to fill Scalia's seat. I have to turn off the audio there. Um, Judge Neil Gorsuch of the 10th 
Circuit Court of Appeals by all available indicators follows Scalia's jurisprudential philosophy and even goes further than Scalia did in certain directions regarding separation of powers. Now, keep that in mind, this issue of separation of powers, because I think it's important to think about that with respect to one powerful objection that some people have had to the Gorsuch appointment. Um, His judicial record, he says, isn't exactly replete with hot button issues, but he's universally on the right side when faced with those hot issues. Now, this is according to Shapiro. So Shapiro and I differ, for example, on the issue of abortion. So we'll see. But he says he has ruled that Obamacare could not trump the religious freedoms of the little sisters of the poor. And I I, of course, I agree with that ruling that Obamacare should not. Little Sisters of the Poor should be free to offer health insurance policies that don't pay for things that you know they're philosophically opposed to, that they are opposed to due to their religion. Um, he says he's ruled that public displays of the Ten Commandments do not, in fact, represent establishment of religion in violation of the Constitution. Now, see, this is where perhaps... Shapiro and I would differ. He says he has stood in favor of the constitutionality of the death penalty and ruled in favor of strengthened Second Amendment rights. I'm lukewarm on the death penalty, but obviously in favor of Second Amendment rights. He says, most importantly, he has an actual judicial philosophy. In 2005, he wrote in the National Review, quote, this is from Gorsuch, American liberals have become addicted to the courtroom, relying on judges and lawyers rather than elected leaders and the ballot box as the primary means of affecting their social agenda on everything from gay marriage to assisted suicide to the use of vouchers for private school education. This overweening addiction to the courtroom as a place to debate social policy is bad for the country and bad for the judiciary. He says in April, Gorsuch stated that Scalia's career, quote, reminds us of the difference between judges and legislators. In other words, he's going to have this, you know, this issue of judicial deference to the legislators. He says that judges, this is Gorsuch, should uh, not be looking to, quote, appeal to their own moral convictions, end quote, but rather to, quote, apply the law as it is, focusing backward, not forward and looking to the text, structure, and history to decide what a reasonable reader at the time of the events in question would have understood the law to be, not to decide cases based on their own moral convictions or the policy consequences they believe might serve society best. Importantly, Shapiro also brings up this issue of the so-called Chevron rule. The Chevron rule has been discussed discussion on, um, you know, the the kind of legal review of regulations. This has been debated a lot, but it's kind of on the fringes in media and the mainstream media. So, what is this rule about? This Chevron rule. It's the notion that courts have to allow executive agencies to interpret ambiguous statutes in any reasonable fashion they choose. So if there is a regulation or there's an ambiguous statute that executive agencies are going to implement, those executive agencies are allowed to have vast deference with respect to um, interpreting those statutes. So they can go out and they can enforce those statutes in any reasonable fashion they choose, they you know when they're interpreting them, 
Um, it's too much deference in many people's minds that it is a judge's job to interpret an ambiguous statute and then tell the executive agency when the executive agency has gone too far in trying to, you know, push their power as, you know, in executing and actually enforcing and implementing the statutes. So um, Shapiro is saying that Gorsuch believes that there is, if you use this Chevron rule, that you're going to give all this deference to executive agencies, that this is an abdication of the judicial function of congressional responsibility. And what you're giving is you're giving too much power to the executive. What Gorsuch wrote in 2016 is that the Chevron rule, quote, permits executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power and concentrate federal power in a way that seems more than a little difficult to square with the constitution of the framers design, end quote. So retaining a division of powers, the separation of powers that our founding fathers believed, and I believe that they were right in this, that is crucial to keep the government on task of performing its central function, which is to uphold and protect and recognize individual rights. Um, you know, it's one thing to lay out a constitution that in substance says that the proper function of government is to protect the rights of the citizens, but it's another thing to actually set up a judicial system, you know, or a system of justice, a government that actually does this. And the framers strongly believed that you needed to have separation of powers. You needed to have the functions of legislating, of adjudicating, and of executing the laws, each in a separate branch of government, where each branch of government had powers given to it by the Constitution to serve as a check from tyrannical people who might wind up in any branch of government. And I would say, you know, particularly when we've got a Trump administration and we're concerned about what he might do with the vast executive power that was bequeathed him by Barack Obama, that when we see a judge that Trump is appointing who thinks that, yes, it's good to serve as a check on the executive who rejects this Chevron rule, I think that's a great thing. So again, Chevron rule says, give deference to the executive branch. Let the executive branch interpret ambiguous statutes any way they want. Gorsuch doesn't believe that that's the right way to go. He thinks that, in fact, the judiciary and the legislative branches need to continue to serve their function as a check on the executive. So um, I think that's ex that's excellent, excellent news. Oh, no. I was just dragging tools into my toolbar on my computer here. And I got a pop-up ad, but I'm going to go over to the switchboard and see who we've got. Be able to be heard now. And I'm okay. trying to... Okay, I think we're here. <laughs> I think I can hear, and I can hear you every single word as well. Hi, this is ridiculous. I don't know exactly what happened, but okay. So welcome to the show, Thank James. How, how are you? So what do you think of this appointment? Well, I think that we have a replacement for Scalia, for sure. He is, uh, I mean, the two men went fishing together. <laughs> 
So, uh, and we're friends, as I understand it. And from all that we've heard, including his articles, books, speeches that he's been giving, uh, he basically has carbon copy philosophy of Scalia for good or ill. Um, right. I, I think in one sense it's better. Uh, I think the left today has completely abandoned any real <laughs> uh, connection with the language of the Constitution much, uh, and will do pretty much what they feel is required in their progressive mind at the time. Um, so at least with a conservative, you have someone who's uh, grounded a little bit in the Constitution, and if, even if he wants to hold us back uh, with the big, broad language in the Bill of Rights, and even if he isn't focused so much on rights, at least he has respect for the language of the Constitution. Right. If you listen carefully to his philosophy, he's, his, it's Scalia plus. It's uh, what a reasonable person at the time the language was drafted would think uh, it applies to, So and no more. So if this wasn't now in that, mind... That's, now, that's, that's how I understand Scalia to, you know, Scalia, originalism. That, that is that, Scalia uh, originalism with yeah. the uh, with a, with a sort of reasonable man uh, 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 test attached to it, um, and um, exactly. And so what we have is pretty much a carbon copy. So, so Scalia Scalia was not, you know, indicating that it would be a reasonable man at the time. It was like a consensus idea that Scalia had Precisely. as opposed to the reason. Okay, okay, I get it. Precisely, and so uh, uh, it. It still requires a historical analysis and trying to get into the head of, you know, James Madison or or, or whoever the drafter of the amendment was uh, at the time, and what they had in mind for. Well, its no, 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 because it's it, no, no, no. It's it's not the drafter, right? It's not the drafter. It's what the reasonable person, you know, I guess fairly educated. I don't know what you're going to, you know, read into that reasonable person at the time. Why? Why am I saying reasonable person? Why? Because I'm PC and I went to school. It used to be called the reasonable <laughs> man standard. Here right. I am. I, I absorb this, right? Um, but we have – the reason why I say the draft – you're right, the reasonable person at the time. Yeah, what uh, the I, reasonable person at the time would – because, again, Scalia, he rejects any idea of so-called original intent. So, you know, you're not getting into the minds of the drafters per se because how many times – I've written things many times thinking that I got my idea out on the paper – and instead, really, the idea was in my head, and I didn't succeed in communicating on paper what I had in my head. And Scalia was very attuned to that and said, look, it is what language they actually drafted and the language that was both drafted and then went through the proper you know, legislative or constitutional enactment process, that, right? Yeah. Yeah, bearing in mind – that there may have been a difference of opinion. Well, the only reason why I say drafter, or let's put it, you're right, the, the, the better way of putting it, the way the prevailing uh, side in whatever dispute existed at the time over that language. In other words, they're, they're well aware of the fact that there may have even been a, 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 an opposition view. Uh, and so it's, it, they take into account that as well. So you're right, it's the meaning at the time uh, that the debate took place and what uh, they thought, the prevailing side thought, uh, 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 the meaning of the words was. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, so there has to be you know, that slight nuance there, uh, but you're absolutely right. It's the plain meaning as they see it at the time. 
So uh, yeah, I mean it's it, it's like it's like a contract, you know, in effect that you're what wound up on the page and what the reasonable person would interpret that language that wound up on the page to mean. And so, you know, instead of saying, okay, what does a reasonable person today interpret the constitutional provision to mean? It's what did the reasonable person at the time? And I don't know that the reasonable person at the time necessarily even had to be a member of the legislature or whatever. They'd have to be sometimes reasonably educated in order to understand you know, some of the terms, but yeah. Okay. So, so, I mean, I mean, it's, so it's Scalia plus, it's Scalia you know, plus, right? but you're right. Yeah. Um, and Gorsuch has never had a chance to rule, say on Roe v. Wade, but he wrote a whole book on assisted suicide. Right. And th- right. And, um, that's kind of disturbing there. Um, well, uh, okay. So, so, so let's, let's stop with that. Um, and I do have a link to a post that is uh, there's a concern group i forget the the name of the interest group about this but there's a group that's very concerned about the gorsuch appointment because of what it might mean for the right to assisted suicide uh two things his language about not imposing your particular moral or policy views on your rulings and instead sticking to the rule of law that makes you think that even though he might be, a, you know, an opponent of assisted suicide, which I, I'm in favor of the right to assisted suicide, of course, that's, you know, that, that, that's a given. The idea that we can provide euthanasia for a suffering pet and we can't do that for a human being is, I mean, it's ridiculous, right? It's cruel to make a human being suffer with a terminal illness you know, towards the end of life and things like that. So the right to do this, I I think, is very, very important. At the same time, if we look at his idea of separation of powers and then also his, you know, explicit statement that it's not a judge's job to infuse his morality or his idea of what is advisable in terms of policy into his rulings, I'm optimistic that even if he's got that view, maybe it won't be imposed upon us. And and frankly, it, the whole area is sort of new and um, mm-hmm. would be asking for something new <laughs> for the Supreme Court to say it's a, you know, a fundamental right to end your own life. Um, and they certainly have never gone that, that yeah, far. Yeah, and actually, let, let me say one thing. I want to talk about the kind of case where this could come up, right? So right, right now we've got in a number of states, a right to assisted suicide. We It started, I believe, in Oregon, maybe right. other states as well, but we have it now also in California. I don't know what other states we have. What could happen under a Trump administration is the federal government might try to put some sort of damper on it via regulation or otherwise. And then or what just to have might... General take was, a, a contrary position. Um, the administration is in control of uh, the official position that the executive branch takes on constitutional questions. And, well, right, uh, right, right. But what would happen is, like right now, you know, we've got state laws that give you this right. So you'd have to have either some sort of federal regulation or some piece of federal legislation that would contradict that. And then, of course, the federal law would be deemed supreme in our constitutional system. And so what would happen is, you know, if they, for instance, here in California, some of us 
wanted to try to challenge in court this federal law that purports to get rid of our state law allowing assisted suicide. We'd have to challenge it in court, and then it would wind up in federal court, right? That, I mean, that's how I understand this Imagine could a happen. state that does not have such a law in which a person claimed in court that they had such a right under the Constitution. Well, that that's – okay, that's different, right? So I would say um, – I think you're possible. Well, I mean – well, but there's there are two different postures, right? So the so the court could say, is it going to affirmatively uphold that right on behalf of American citizens? And the Supreme Court may not do that, may or may not. But, more reluctant, I think. Yeah, it it might be uh, the Supreme Court might be more eager to uphold a federal law or regulation or even executive order. I don't know how this would you know exactly how that would be done, but some sort of federal law that contradicts and nullifies the state law. So if there's actually a piece of federal law that comes out, you know, it's, it's, it's another thing to say, okay, I'm sitting here in a state that's not allowing me to have assisted suicide, protect me Supreme court. The Supreme court, as I understand it, is much less likely to help that person than it is to, for instance, defer to a state law. Of course, in the history of of Supreme court jurisprudence, that that is the the way some uh, cases have been taken up by the court. Uh, right, right. Of course. Currently, of course. I would I would uh, think that uh, they wouldn't do so. And it's interesting because a guy like Gorsuch, of course, would should theoretically defer to the state when, <laughs> unless it is a matter of fundamental rights, and he wouldn't be of a mind to extend uh, fundamental rights one way or another, unless unless perhaps he thought that the right to life to <laughs> was uh, so. If he's if deferential you, you, you to have a, You have a right to life, but we're going to tell you how to exercise it. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so theoretically, he'd be deferential to, say, Oregon's law, or should be. Uh, yeah. Deferential to or you know, philosophically speaking, uh, given his, his approach. Uh, but he has a particular opinion about it himself, and he said he wouldn't oppose, uh, impo- try to impose his own moral viewpoints. Um he does sound very, very skilly alike, and um, he, he's quite young too. Um, uh, only born in 1967, he could be on the court for quite some time. Wow. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, part of my concern uh, uh, is whatever we think of of Gorsuch and whatever we think of any particular appointment, it's kind of sad to see the the filibuster for presidential appointments. Um, at, die in front of our eyes. Trump has signaled that he's perfectly willing to let the uh, – uh, to go with the nuclear option, as they call it, and uh, let the filibuster be um, uh, eliminated um, with respect to Supreme Court uh, nominees. Of course, the filibuster was uh, for a presidential appointments was mostly uh, taken out by Harry Reid and Obama uh, in right. 2013. Um, in 2013, they, they passed a series of, of um, limitations on the filibuster, climaxing with uh, the end of the filibuster for cabinet appointments and for judicial appointments uh, below the Supreme Court. So Trump is just taking the next step if this happens. And uh, let's hope it doesn't happen. I understand that there are uh, seven Democrats who would be willing to let uh, the, the Gorsuch go to a vote. They only need one more. And that would avoid the elimination of uh, the filibuster. Of course, the filibuster itself is not in the Constitution, but it is a, a venerable tradition that goes, you know, way back to at least the 1830s. Now, uh, ex- ex- explain explain why you're in favor of keeping the filibuster. 
it is a democracy thwarting institution uh, without a doubt it causes delay and obstruction of the immediate desire of the majority and that is what the Senate is all about the Senate is not a democratic institution uh, in right. fact with the discussion over the Electoral College uh, the Senate is far less democratic than the Electoral College, which only meets once every four years to elect the president. Uh, at least California has a lot more electoral votes than, say, Rhode Island or Wyoming <laughs> but uh, uh, in the Electoral College, whereas in the Senate, California has precisely the same votes as Wyoming or R Rhode Island does, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, so, uh, and, it is, and the Senate is far more powerful, in fact, has special uh, powers under the Constitution to approve of, of treaties, for example, with a two-thirds vote. So not only uh, is the Senate itself uh, undemocratic, uh, some, of it, some of the special powers it has have supermajority rules, and a couple of those are built into the Constitution. So the Senate is designed, was designed by the framers to be a, a giant brake pedal on the will of the majority. Right. And it, and the Senate rules that developed over time uh, pretty rapidly, uh, the theoretical possibility of filibusters existed all the way back to the early 1800s with Vice President Aaron Burr. It really wasn't used until the uh, 1830s and 1840s when it kind of became institutionalized. And then at, at around World War One, when Woodrow Wilson wanted to go to war, uh, uh, Republicans in the Senate opposed him, and that's when they came up with the cloture rule, which says that you know two-thirds of the Senate, and then it became 60 uh, uh, votes, could uh, stop uh, uh, the filibuster, is what it requires to stop a okay, filibuster. Okay, so, so, so according to the current rule, and you said it came in around World War One. Right, the cloture right? rule. Yeah, yeah the says, cloture rule. So, so it says that in order to stop a filibuster and actually go to a vote, You'd have to have a two-thirds majority. Is that right? Is to which today is uh, I think well they changed the rule to three-fifths. So today it's 60 votes uh, for if all 100 senators are present. Okay. Okay. And, so you'd have uh, to have a three-fifths. Yeah, three-fifths or something like that. So it's about 60 uh, votes uh, um, uh, if the 100 senators are present. So um, with all important votes, that's basically what it is. Uh, you have to have 60 votes to get over the uh, possibility of a filibuster. Now, the thought is that the use of closure and filibusters dramatically increased uh, in the 1970s. And both sides have started to use filibusters more and more frequently uh, uh, since that time. In the last four decades, it's become uh, a, a partisan you know, uh, war, really, with the filibuster. And so obstructionism uh, is a dirty word when, of course, obstructionism is the whole point of the Senate <laughs> and the filibuster, uh, to delay, at least, the, the will of the majority um, or just thwart it altogether. And uh, we do not have a democracy, and uh, that was not the intent, <laughs> speaking of original intent of the Now, here's, here's the thing, right? So we do need... A separation of powers. We do need these institutions, you know, within the different branches as well, that will, as you say, serve as a check on 
democracy, right? We don't want pure democracy. Again, my shorthand for thinking of democracy is democracy means Socrates drinks the hemlock. You know, if the majority votes for something horrible to happen, it can, and, you know, not just horrible, but rights violating, if I want to be more specific about it. Um, Yeah, nothing could be more dramatic than the opening words of the Bill of Rights. Congress shall make no law. Right, right. And And, they... (laughs) So uh, the the whole idea of rights is that those are things that even a majority or a supermajority can't trample on, at least in the near term. Exactly. um, And unfortunately, what we're seeing in recent years is the um, rise of a demand for democracy, the attack on the Electoral College, the Mm -hmm. demise of the filibuster to the extent it's already been taken out, etc., well, and senators are being elected and, you know, chosen in a way that's different, right? So senators used to be selected via state legislatures, right? Correct? Right. right. And part so, of, uh, so we've reform. already gone more towards a democracy in, in some ways. So you might say, okay, you know, insofar as there's been this creep toward democracy, it would be nice to keep some of these rules or traditions within the Senate Even though in the near term, I agree with Professor Randy Barnett. He's absolutely correct. Without, uh, 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 if we did have, say, the old filibuster and and Democrats could thwart this, we would be far less likely to have someone we could know up front (laughs) would be Scalia-like, at least. Um, We would be having to make... um, guesses and perhaps get surprises like uh, um, George Bush the Elder got with, say, Justice Souter. Uh, right. And, um, and the surprise can work both ways. I mean, uh, um, Byron White was appointed by Kennedy, he started out kind of liberal, and then he kind of became conservative as he as the years went by on the bench. And so uh, an unknown, the Supreme Court is always, an uh, appointment to the Supreme Court is always an unknown factor. But um, we have to bite the bullet when it comes to, I think, procedural matters, whether it favors our guy or not. Um, and that's another thing that I f- kind of find distressing. Last year, of course, the Senate Democrats were saying it is our constitutional obligation and responsibility to take up presidential uh, nominations just as soon as possible. And, of sure. course, now the shoe is on the other foot, and it's uh, the Republicans in the Senate who are saying, oh, well, it's our duty to take up presidential nominations as soon as possible, and we can't let the Democrats filibuster it. Uh, both parties seem to be able to uh, – for partisan purposes, argue it out of both sides of their mouth whenever it's uh, convenient. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, can't help. You know, on, on, on that score, the thing that's disappointed me lately is, as I understand it, Ted Cruz was criticizing the outgoing, you know, acting Attorney General Yates about her decision to not defend the executive order that Trump issued about immigration. And as I understand it, I don't know that Cruz was really right to criticize what she did. Now, on the other hand, Trump could fire her, and that's totally within his power, and that's fine too. But, you know, I'm seeing a little bit of this partisanship out of Cruz that's a little disappointing to me, just as a side note. I I had a – my constitutional law professor, uh, Bernard Segan, was nominated to um, the – Circuit Court of Appeals um, by Ronald Reagan, and his nomination was simply not taken up for more than a year. Wow. So I, you know, uh, for personal reasons, 
I have. I know that the Senate can just delay as they choose. And I was told at the time, much to my consternation, that the Senate can delay any judicial nomination as long as it wants. Uh, wow. Back then, of course, the, the Democrats had the Senate, and there was no way they were going to approve of Art Segan because he was a fierce advocate, for example, of economic liberties um, uh, being enforced uh, by, uh, as, as a matter of right. Uh, by the courts. And so mm -hmm. the Democrats were never going to allow him onto the Court of Appeals, uh, just as the Republicans would, were never going to allow um, uh, Garland uh, to, to get on the Supreme Court, uh, uh, that is to say, Obama's appointment. So when, the Repu when Democrats say, hey, we need payback for what you guys did to Garland in delaying his appointment for basically a year, I, I have very little sympathy because they've done it, uh, you know, themselves. I, I don't really like the argument they did it too, and perhaps we need to have a rule that says that the Senate needs to take up presidential nominations within X amount of time, uh, right. but no such rule actually exists. Yeah, so maybe maybe that's got to be the modification, right? Not that I, you're going to get rid of the filibuster, but that you do have to take it up within some certain period of time. And I guess... It could still be such that it would allow the clock to run out on somebody like Obama. Right, the depending on the time years. frame they gave. Right, um, right. In right. terms of alt, I'm I'm actually I think I, I I'm happier that that uh, as I say that someone more grounded or rooted in the language of the Constitution, even if it's a, a, a much narrower view than I would like to see um, uh, be the case. Uh, I'd much rather he get in, say, than someone that uh, Mrs. Clinton would have probably nominated, um, if if I have to choose. Like you right. say in the program, uh, it's kind of half a loaf, right? But I'll take that half a loaf, frankly. Right, right. So let me let me just kind of re recapitulate the criticism of originalism as I understand Tara Smith to have made it. Um, so in philosophy of law there's this traditional dispute between the natural law theorists and the positivists and natural law theorists in effect are going to read morality into the language of the law that you're, you're going to interpret constitu constitutional provisions and other things according to moral principles, right? And you're going to uphold or, or not apply accordingly. Whereas the positivist, the positivist just says that law is a creature of human behavior. There are certain human behaviors that we engage in, promulgating, enacting, things like this. You know, all of us having a certain attitude about the law, says H.L.A. Hart, right? We take an internal point of view about the law. Um, we behave certain ways about legal language, and that is all that there is to law. It doesn't have any particular moral root or foundation, law is law, positivist. Um, we posit law, you know, is another way to think of it. And so the way Tara Smith thinks of Scalia's view, that even though it's an originalist type of view, it goes back to some of the really good ideas that the founding fathers had. Nonetheless, she says, look, it is a positivist view in the sense that what you're doing is you are, you know, sort of erecting a deference to um, 
men again, you know, true, it's the founding fathers, it's people of the founding era, it's in Gorsuch's interpretation, the reasonable man in the founding era who's looking at the language of the Constitution. This sounds like really good stuff, but nonetheless, you are in effect in favor of a government of men and not laws. It's these particular men and what they thought about this language at a certain point in time. And the way that Tara Smith talks about it, it fails to treat the language in the Constitution as conceptual, that these are concepts about which we can learn things that are true later, and we can enhance our knowledge about, for example, what cruel and unusual punishments are, um, and we can concepts. apply, you know, we, we can apply the, you know, the, you know, what we learn later and, you know, use it in our interpretation of this language. Instead, she says, we're frozen in the mindset and, you know, whatever knowledge, limited knowledge and understanding the people of the founding era had about what this language means. Well, that's exactly right. Concepts, uh, you know, as objectivists, we know concepts are open-ended mm-hmm. precisely in order to include new uh, uh, concretes. Um in my view, Tara Smith is not only correct philosophically, she's correct in terms of the actual original intent of the framers. They gave us the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, which sort of tell us how to read the Constitution. Um, they specifically say that if some power is not specifically granted to Congress, well, then that power is reserved to the states or the people themselves. And they also said that the rights enumerated in the Constitution shouldn't, are not the only rights that individuals possess. In other words, they're telling us, read the rights broadly, read mm-hmm. the powers narrowly. And yes. if you think about it for five seconds, it makes perfect sense. If, for mm-hmm. example, the Constitution says that the term of the president ends on noon on the 20th day of January every four years, the specificity there uh, should be taken seriously. Um, That is a a very narrow and specific construction that is required uh, of us. On the other hand, if big, broad language uh, is used, you know, the freedom to exercise religion, uh, the freedom of the press and freedom of speech, whoa, those are big. uh, What exactly does that mean? They are using open-ended, big, broad language on purpose, language Mm -hmm. that they themselves realized they didn't have all the specific uh, applications to down pat. And that is why they included the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, specifically to as in, interpretive uh, instructions to courts on how to, you know, uh, and others, presidents and congresses, how to interpret the language of the Bill of Rights. Uh, in other words, read the, the rights broadly, just as we speak in broad language about rights, and read the powers and procedures and how to use those powers narrowly. And what I would say is that both conservatives and liberals or leftists have have it wrong, but have it half right. Uh, 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 One side will say, oh, well, we have to be, you know, broad with our interpretation of all of it. The other side says, no, we have to be narrow, narrow about our interpretation of all of it. Well, both ignore the the implications of the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, which are sort of the interpretive guide, in my view, as to how to read the Constitution. Um, and yet, of course, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments have basically been set aside by the 
explicitly by certain justices in their opinions of the Supreme Court, uh, just right. empty words. And that, that, you know, the Ninth Amendment has been Barnett's huge, you know, cause that he's been advocating for throughout his career. In fact, as I was on his Twitter feed today, he had at the top of his feed pinned a tweet about Ninth Amendment. And, you know, the, I guess he calls it the forgotten Ninth Amendment, as I, as I recall. Professor Tara Smith, she's exactly right, and I think the Constitution backs her up on it, actually. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and so then that's really the problem, right, with, with a Gorsuch. Yeah, we get an originalist. I don't actually know. You know, for me, my favorite concrete set of views that Scalia held was on the issue of privacy, and I don't know – where Gorsuch stands on that, I'd be interested to take a look and see where he's going to be. If he's, I would assume that he would probably continue in Scalia's tradition of returning to the language of the Fourth Amendment and construing what constitutes a search in terms of persons, houses, papers, and effects, which is what Scalia was on track to keep doing. And right. eventually, eventually that might help the court to see privacy as rooted in property and contract as, as I do. That was my dream. Uh, whether this man is, is going to continue down that particular path on, on the issue of privacy, I don't know. I could be hopeful about that. But overall, so we got this half loaf, right? We have originalism, which I guess of all the explicitly held judicial philosophies that somebody appointed to the court could have might be the best that you could expect out of a GOP president right. better than My better terror. than better than nothing. Yes. Yes, I, I agree. I, I, I actually am in terror of what would happen if uh, a bunch of leftists that took over on the court they could create all kinds of positive welfare rights, a right to uh, public education, a right to right. that. That has me shaking in my boots, quite frankly, uh, because they are just salivating to do those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, at least with Gorsuch, we would have restraint in terms of, uh, you know, sticking to uh, the the meaning of the words as at least as so far interpreted, and a great deference to um, uh, uh, precedent as well. Um, so that's better than I guess the alternative, even though it wouldn't apply rights as broadly as you and I might want them to be. Right. You know, right. the, to return to one of the other points you made about uh, the separation of powers. Since, of course, the New Deal, the federal government has created all sorts of executive and administrative agencies, you know, all those alphabet agencies, which Congress has given its power to, uh, and not just its power to, but uh, uh, the power to legislate, the power to interpret the legislation, to enforce that legislation. Uh, and so, in effect, um, so many of these administrative agencies are themselves walking violations of the separation of powers as conceived by the, the framers of the Constitution. Because exactly. these administrative agencies do all three. They are the, the uh, legislators who make the rule, they are the uh, executives who enforce the rule, and they are the judiciary that interprets their own rule. Um, now, since the 1950s, uh, a series of uh, Supreme Court decisions have said, oh, that's okay, that's no violation of separation of powers, and has let the the federal government get away with uh, doing just that. Um, So we have, what, 60 years now of of Supreme Court precedent that basically uh, allows these administrative agencies to do that. Uh, 
And so the Chevron rule is really an upshot of sort of the resignation, the throwing in the towel uh, of the separation of powers doctrine as such when it comes to regulatory and administrative agencies. Probably the the single most damaging thing I think that that happened in the course of the 20th century in terms of constitutional jurisprudence. We, we had a, the 20th century saw the Bill of Rights get applied against the states in a piecemeal fashion via the 14th Amendment. That is probably the best thing that happened in Supreme Court jurisprudence in the last century. And maybe the worst thing was permitting administrative agencies to um, completely violate the separation of powers as conceived by the framers of the Constitution. Yeah, now I'm looking at the judicial opinion that Gorsuch wrote he wrote an opinion, and this was just last year. Um, this case is called Gutierrez Brizuela versus Loretta Lynch, and it was the opinion is published August twenty third, two thousand sixteen. And this is where Gorsuch, I guess, has that key language that I quoted earlier from Shapiro. Uh, you know, basically saying that the Chevron rule is a violation of this issue of separation of powers, that it allows the executive to encroach on the functions of the legislative and the judiciary. You know, I just just look in here just because I was curious how long has this Chevron rule been around? And it's been around only since the mid-1980s. 1984 was this rule, you know, sort of, I guess, you know, reified reified by the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's fresh enough to do something about, and it's kind of exciting right. to see that a, um, sort of an intellectual leader, a young intellectual leader, might be put on the court who opposes it. So, yes, keep our yes. fingers crossed. I guess that it may be a little better than half a loaf. I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah, and and so yeah, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about that. On the other hand, do you, would you also want to talk about this immigration executive order that Trump has issued and? What you know? What you think about that? Because some, in some ways, and why? Why do I think it could be sort of half a loaf? Uh, there's a number of countries listed in the order that potentially people coming from those countries do pose a real danger, and you could not say a ban perhaps, on Muslims. <laughs> yeah, not not a ban on no Muslims. How the, the press of the Democrats um, try to to, to to spin it. Um, right, right. Not a ban. Would, on, relig- on someone's religion coming in, it specifically uh, names the, the nations. Uh, it, it's somewhat, in fact, uh, constrictive in that way. I mean, the, the, the 9-11 terrorists mostly came from Saudi Arabia, right? And Saudi Arabia right. is not among those countries uh, with restricted immigration. I, I was distressed nor, to see nor how is it all... Egypt. I think nor is United Arab, Emirates, Arab, uh, United Arab Emirates or Qatar, right, as far as I know, are not listed in this order as well. So most definitely not a just a you know hashtag Muslim ban, <laughs> uh, no matter how the left wants to spin it. On the other hand, I was distressed to see the way it was being interpreted because uh, uh, there were you know Kurds and Christians and 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 people who've been working with the United States, um, people with green cards, for example. Initially, we, they didn't even know how that was going to uh, pan out. So uh, the way it came down was unfortunate, uh, but. Um, you know, and I hate to again sound like, hey, the other guys did it, but Obama, uh, uh, frankly, wasn't very friendly to Cuban refugees. Um, the left wasn't oh, very friendly to yes. Vietnamese refugees back in the 1970s. 
So uh, again, it's a matter of convenience uh, for Democrats when they shed crocodile tears for refugees, it seems to me. Um, on the other hand, there was nothing pleasant about the way uh, the order first came down. There was chaos, and it wasn't just the demonstrations. Right, right. Now, there's there's two points that Yaron made, and then also I've seen in this post of Tim Sandifer. Again, if people go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com, you can see uh, there was actually a, a very funny little skit on Saturday Night Live that a listener, Daniel, reminded us of uh, that talked about you know, Obama doing the executive order, um, you know, and it, so it's a, it's a play on the old skit that we all saw the schoolhouse rock. I'm just a bill and then how, how it's modified for an executive order. It's pretty funny. Um, but you know, has, hasn't this come home to roost now in a, a certain way? Cause now here's Trump issuing this, this executive order. But um, you know, there's two things. First of all, the fact that, the countries that were left out were very conspicuously left out and in fact may have been the ones that would be more crucial to include in a ban like this. So that's the way in which you could say this is half a loaf. But the more important way is that here we are, we have this little ban and, uh, and we'll, I guess we will call it a ban. Um, and we don't, we don't have behind it the fighting of a proper war against jihad uh, we don't have a de- we don't have a declaration of a war we don't have a fighting of a war against the different countries and so if trump is doing this apart from taking the proper steps to fight and declare a proper war is it going to do more harm than good so you know with respect to the gorsuch and the half a loaf question yeah is half a loaf better than none in that case i'm tending to say yes especially in today's context. I don't know that there's anything better that you can expect. But here we are with Trump. Certainly, he could do this correctly. He could declare a proper war. He could include in a comprehensive immigration policy, a wartime immigration policy, the salient countries, right? You know, let's include Saudi Arabia. Was it 15 out of the 19 hijackers Yaron was talking about on his show were from Saudi Arabia, and yet exactly. they're not included in this travel ban. Exactly right. Makes little sense. And the difference, uh, uh, I believe that an executive would have far greater latitude and discretion in a time of war, and should. And the, the, but that level of executive power in peacetime um, is rather disturbing as we inch closer and closer to having a sort of imperial president. You know, right. so ironic uh, Barack Obama himself in, in, uh, in 2008 campaigned against the concentration of executive power. He complained about the of, of George W. Bush's executive orders, only to end up, of course, uh, blazing new trails with executive orders, actually modifying his own Obamacare law into something palatable via executive order, knowing he couldn't go back to Congress after he'd lost it, uh, to get a, a legislative modification of the Affordable Health Care Act. Um, and, of course, he did so with immigration, and we talked about that before. And he did so he simply saying, I'm not going to wait for Congress. But, you know, I have a telephone and a pen. Um, yep. He moved st- step by step towards a Caesar president, and uh, <clears throat> even as the candidates complain, they march right through the door with their – phone and pen and make it worse and worse every time we turn around. Right. And this is 
you know, the sort of thing that's behind some comments that I've seen people make about Gorsuch on Twitter is, look, Gorsuch seems like at least one person who is poised to counter this expansion of executive power. So, you know, again, it's particularly remarkable. And I'm going to give, you know, I, I criticize Trump where I think he's wrong, but there in that appointment of going through and following through with this, it seems to be right. I've also included, by the way, Gorsuch, I just want to mention, uh, we'll get back to the immigration in a second. Um, I've included in the program notes a link. Uh, Professor Katchel, I think is how you pronounce it, but he also has been a solicitor general under Obama, as I understand, Neil Katchel. Um, he uh, has an op-ed in New York Times, Why Liberals Should Back Neil Gorsuch. And, and he says, look, this is a man who believes in rule of law over rule of men, and he's implying, in essence, that this person is not going to roll over for Trump. And right. uh, it, it, it's good to at least see that there. So when you go through this idea of the executive order, I think Tim Sandifer had some really nice things to say about it. I, you know, I I don't know how much you are familiar with his work, but I did have him on the show in oh, no. April on I'm always the property rights. Oh, um, this guy, he's just a powerhouse and he's so just benevolent, the sense of life in this guy. I I just love him. So he has this post hasty thoughts on the Trump executive order. And he says, the main thing to keep in mind is the pointlessness of it all. He says, walling out people who are fleeing tyranny won't win the war. Only victory over the enemy ever wins a war. If we've decided not to win, We should openly admit we've accepted defeat, but pretending to fight while in reality locking the door and hiding behind the couch is just cowardice. He says nothing but plain old-fashioned cowardice, no matter how much his excellency, he's calling Trump, might like to comb it over and pretend it's bold, end quote. I just love it. Um, That is, yeah, (laughs) exactly right. You're right. So he's echoing what Yaron said which is this issue that we do need to fight a proper war. And for those people who want to say that your own is not for restricting Muslim immigration, that's not the case at all. Your own had said on the show that I linked to in the program notes, again, he's, he said it many times that he's in favor of restricting immigration of Muslims and everybody else from these countries that are hotbeds of jihad terrorism. Right? So you know, I, the idea that that he's not for this, but it's only in the context of also fighting a proper war. And this is where right. the, I don't see the statistics come into play, right? Because yeah. let I me add it, one piece to the puzzle here. Let me add one piece. Um, the statistic that I have in mind is the one that says that the people who have committed the terrorist attacks on our soil after 9-11 are not immigrants. They are at least predominantly or perhaps all people who are born and raised here. Now, they second generation, whatever. And why is that important? It's not, you know, just looking at this narrow. I'm, I'm starting to think of Harrison, um, you know, Peterson again. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not just the narrow idea that, you know, do we keep immigrants out? No, we don't keep immigrants out because it's not immigrants that do this. You, you think of this total context of needing to fi- fight a proper war because the people who are already here are going to be inspired by perceived success 
in the jihadist cause abroad because we're not fighting a proper war, right? So it's not enough to just keep the, the new bad guys out. You have to prevent the people who are already here who could potentially be bad guys from being heartened, inspired, right. emboldened, emboldened by the perceived success of their brethren abroad, the ISIS horribleness. Uh, we need to declare a proper war, defeat the enemy, so that the people who are already here won't be inspired as well. Otherwise, it's lost. Right, right. I, in my view, the government should not use ideology – well, should not use ideology in any way, shape, or form unless we are actively at official declared war, and that ideology is part of it. So, for example, in World War II – could the government restrict the immigration of Nazis into the United States? Well, of course. If we're fighting a war against Nazi Germany, it makes perfect sense to use that kind of ideological screening. And indeed, in a declared war where we're fighting Nazi Germany, uh, to allow Nazis to engage in recruitment, uh, you know, raising money and recruit, recruiting, uh, say, uh, uh, saboteurs in the United States, could the government do anything about that? Well, of course they could, so long as we're at official war with a uh, government that uh, advocates Nazism. We could take positive steps to prevent the recruitment of Nazis here in the United States or the propagation of Nazism in the United States, mm -hmm. but only in that context. Right. Um, when in peacetime we say, well, we can restrict uh, Muslims as such, I get a queasy feeling in my stomach until and unless the, the, the Congress says, no, wait a minute, this is the enemy ideology that we're at war against, um, at least uh, the state's ideology of the states that we're against, um, mm -hmm. then that kind of ideological screening gives me uh, uh, heartburn, if you will. I don't think it's the government's business uh, uh, to use ideology in that fashion, uh, normally speaking. And I think it is only an official declaration of war against a country that is uh, promoting that ideology um, in its war with us that the government actually uh, is permitted or should be permitted to use ideological screening in, a no in any number of contexts. Okay. Okay. No, and I, I, I would tend to agree with you there on that as well. I hadn't thought about the issue of ideological screening and endorsing it in any context myself. You know, I, I, I was thinking mostly about the peacetime context, but having heard you, I'm, I'm open to thinking that, you know, in the context of a proper declaration of war, okay. It's funny because I'm finding myself thinking along the Peterson lines in a certain way with respect to this immigration ban and thinking of this half a loaf question about the immigration ban. So, is it the case that what Trump has done now, of course, we don't know Trump is going to issue, I think, a more comprehensive immigration right. order or he's is he going to introduce legislation and do it properly? I forget which, but this is not his I last word on immigration yeah. policy. This is the beginning. But nonetheless, I mean, if you take into account not just what we've discussed here today, but you also take into account there has been some real kind of carnage. Uh, there's a woman who died because I guess her green card, you know, wasn't honored to get her back in. Then there's a, a badly burned 10 year old boy who was separated from his family in Boston. I'm reading, you know, little headlines about, you know, people who are probably innocent who have been hurt by this order because maybe it wasn't done in the proper way. 
um, wasn't respecting the rights of, of people who've already been through a vetting process and such. Uh, exactly. So there's that issue. Um, but because it's piecemeal and it does leave out important countries that should be part of such a ban, and because it's not done in the context of declaring and fighting a proper war, et cetera, is half a loaf worse than having no loaf at all in this case? What do you think? Well, I think that there's a distinction between the short and the long term there. I think that we have long-term damage to our system when we don't declare war, when we don't do it properly, when we eliminate the filibuster, when we, when we do damage to the system, there's long-term mm-hmm. damage. And in the short run, we may get a Supreme Court justice we like, or we may get terrorists screened out. Um, so there's a short-term gain, I suppose, um, but at a long-term cost. And now, I'm, I'm wondering if there's even a short-term gain because well, at, people at have been gain. inspired <laughs> You know, that, that in effect, we have incited, um, you know, hatred again against the system. You know, the idea that this is a, an unjust Muslim ban done the wrong way. It's well, just there, there, I going think that to the inspire left is, more like, jihadists. Well, there I think that the left is at least to blame as Trump is, because Trump says here we have a temporary ban uh, with respect to certain countries. And the left says, aha, hashtag Muslim ban. So uh, mm-hmm. the left, as it announces this as a ban against Muslims, are the ones who are probably aggravating. See, uh, but the entire line of reasoning that says that our actions are what's causing the jihadists, I reject. I reject entirely. They would be after America and they would be after Israel, just as they were before we had opened uh, Gitmo, <laughs> Guantanamo Bay Prison, and before we had announced any sort of immigration bans. Uh, they, sure. I don't think that has much to do with it. But uh, okay. insofar as it does, the left, the left's exaggeration about what Trump's doing is at least as much to blame as Trump's action, it seems to me. Right. But still, if we were declaring and fighting and defending, you know, with the right types of statements and everything, a proper war, and putting this in the context of that, then it would be a lot more effective. I was going to just state briefly, and I don't know if I talked to you about this before, Jim, but um, my idea on, you know, thinking about banning immigrants to United States while we're in this war is I think of it exactly along the lines of, so-called civilian casualties in war as well. Yes, there will be some good people who would be excluded from coming to United States during such a ban. But if it's done as part of a proper war, that this is something that we've decided is necessary to eliminate the threat to the United States with minimal loss of life and property and everything else on our side, right? Which is what we're entitled to look at. We're, we're entitled to look at our own national self-interest. Um, just as much as sometimes fighting a proper war is going to result in actual civilian casualties when you bomb the enemy, another type of civilian casualty is keeping good people out of the country. Again, insofar as you've properly defined who those people are and why they're being kept out, right? I could not agree more. America, to use one of Trump's line, we 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 have a right to to say America first in these contexts. 
that is to say the the safety and lives of Americans <laughs> uh, uh, the American government can give priority to no question about it absolutely and in the context of a legitimate war yes there may be uh, innocents who die and there may be uh, good people who are denied entry into the United States right. uh, but sorry though winning the war as quickly and efficiently as possible should be the goal yes and winning the war means eliminating that threat because, it, again, it's all about the right to national self-defense. So um, so half a loaf better than none, probably not in this case, although where the blame lies, I guess, is mixed in your view. Is that the idea then, James? You're right. Precisely right. Okay. I think there's blame on both sides here, yeah. Okay. Um, Mark Cuban had a little piece, Trump travel ban, half-assed, half-baked. That's the, I guess, the technical term. People, I guess, can check that out in the program notes at the blog. The other legal issue that I was hoping that you'll stay on and talk to me about is this issue of, you know, whether the attorney general did the right or wrong thing. And as I talked about, I just mentioned early in the show that I was disappointed in Senator Ted Cruz in criticizing Yates for what she did. And the reason is the reason that was expressed in the Tim Sandifer blog post. This may as well just be the Tim Sandifer show today because I have so many links from him. He's so excellent. But he has a blog post that I was sharing before, and he had tweeted it out back from 2015, title, Attorneys General Have a Duty Not to Defend unconstitutional laws. And in there, he talks about the fact that if somebody is a sitting attorney general, that it is part of that person's job to independently evaluate whether a particular law that he or she's been asked to defend, whether that law is constitutional, and then to act accordingly. So that if asked by the president to defend a law that you believe in your own independent judgment is unconstitutional, that it would be your duty as attorney general, to not defend it. That's part of our system of checks and balances. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, I would agree with that. And she okay. has, she had every right to say, I do not think that this that comports with the Constitution and I won't uh, enforce it. But as you said earlier, that means the president has the same equal right to say, well, you're fired. Um, right. And, 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 that, and that's, that, that's the contemporary post that I also included from Tim Sandifer's blog. Um, he said, yeah, attorneys general have that. But at the same time, he writes in a blog post from January 31st yesterday, Trump was right to fire Yates, but it doesn't mean she was wrong. You know, so be able, be able to get this nuanced view of it. You're going to get it from, you know, someone like Sandifer, who's both principled and, you know, again, thinking of the various concretes at play, right? Right. I wouldn't criticize um, the, uh, a government attorney who was following their conscience with respect to the Constitution. Um, that That's a moral thing to do, um, wh- whether you specifically agree with her position or not. Uh, on the other right. hand, you, you, might, you might disagree with her interpretation of the Constitution, right? You might exactly. disagree with her evaluation as to whether this executive order was unconstitutional, but whether she was acting within the scope of her duties, right? And, and there's, there's a couple separate things she could have done, right? She, if she believes it's unconstitutional, then she's acting within her, the scope of her duties. And she need not resign, I don't think, in that view. What she's doing is then challenging Trump. Here, I think this is unconstitutional. 
Here's why. She have a duty to tell the president her opinion of the matter, in fact. Exactly. Yeah, because this is why you have an attorney general so that this person can specialize in this and then, you know, tell the president their their view. Um, A separate idea, you know, suppose it's constitutional, but she finds it morally abhorrent. Then then, what does she do? I I suspect uh, that she would not have complained had Obama done something similar in terms of an executive order, theoretically speaking. So I'm not sure that it it was anything more or less than her personal conscience. I'd like to see her constitutional, you know, position. And if analysis, right. Yeah, you would like to see you know the analysis saying, for sure. But, yeah. uh, assuming that it is purely a personal moral uh, uh, question, then I think she has uh, a duty to, to herself to not opine. In other words, uh, as a government lawyer, if this violates my conscience, I'm not. I, I say I can't do it. On the other hand, I'm not going to give, issue a constitutional opinion saying this is why I think you know the con- this contradicts the Constitution. So there's a subtle difference there. I don't right. think you can make someone you know violate their conscience. And if it is just her own personal conscience and she doesn't have a constitutional or legal argument to make about it, uh, then maybe she should step down because it's interfering with her work. And exactly. that's the distinction I'd make. That's what Kim Davis down. probably should have done, right? Kim Davis from, was she in North Carolina? She's the one who decided that she wasn't going to issue marriage licenses even after right. the Supreme Court had ruled. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly mm-hmm. right. Really, Step uh, down. You know, and go, go ahead and have a big press conference when you step down to make your statement or whatever. That's fine. But right. um, separate you know, uh, what's constitutional from what's your moral opinion. As a public prosecutor, we we have consciences, and you know, as a public prosecutor, you know, if I have an issue with the with what I'm assigned to do, I would simply have gone to my supervisor and said, "Could you reassign this case?" Um, I just can't do it uh, consistently with my conscience and the office's policy. It it doesn't necessarily require her to step down, but it sure requires her to step aside. So that the law can, <laughs> as it exists, and the policy, uh, as it exists, can go on, go into force. As a, uh, in effect, a clerical uh, uh, officer, she doesn't have a right to impose her view of the law, her morals, <laughs> on the law. The law is the law. So right, right, yep. So we have this, you know, interesting idea that you know, first of all. Yates wasn't necessarily wrong, and again, we could talk about what was her personal motive for doing what she did um, that, you know, her personal motive, we can't get into her head and decide what it is. I had a student yesterday who had decided that her personal motive was to get her 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> Maybe it was right. I don't know that it was, um, but that's, that, you know, that's not the issue. The question was, was she acting within the scope of her duties? And right. Sandifer would argue, yes, she was acting within the scope of her duties, but that Trump also would be then justified to fire her if he disagreed with the at least purported position about the unconstitutionality of this order. Exactly right. Um, yeah. Or even, you know, on policy grounds, too. But you, you're not supposed to just stand up there as attorney general on the basis of policy and say these things. You're supposed to do it on the basis of of constitutionality. Um let me see. Are are you still good to hang for a few more minutes, Jim? Or, sure. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me see if I've got anything else here in the program notes that I specifically want to 
tap you on back over at the blog, don'tletitgo.com. Check out program notes. Got a lot of good stuff in there. Um, enjoy the reminiscence about old Saturday Night Live. Oh, here, here's one. Have we? Have you and I just talked about DeVos for the Education Secretary? Apparently, Rob Abiera sent me this link shortly before showtime. There are two Republican senators now who will who say that they will vote against DeVos for Education Secretary. So there's some chance that that appointment won't go through. Did you have an opinion on her? I don't have an informed opinion. I'd, I'd hate okay. to share it with your listeners. No, that's fine. I had done a segment on her some you know, several shows ago when she was announced. And from what I could tell, I mean, first of all, there was a shift from the idea of eliminating the Department of Education and eliminating national standards like the Common Core when they were first announcing her as being nominated for this position. She uh, was talking about getting rid of Common Core but having a new higher national standard. So that doesn't do anything good for me because all it's going to be, it's going to be some federal standard for education that's going to incorporate Trump's values or whatever values Trump's people decide to throw in there, right? So that, that's not an improvement necessarily on my uh, opinion. Then there's this issue that she's for school choice and everyone's supposed to be excited because you're going to have more choice about education. But what I do know is that she has been heavily associated with so-called public interest groups who are religious-based and who have explicitly said that the way to make our country more religious, to save our country religiously, you know, in the eyes of God, is through the education system. And so if she's implementing school choice, you can imagine that whatever program it's going to be is going to be one that's friendly really friendly to religion. And my concern is if you take the combination of whatever voucher program the government would offer and, um, you know, the new higher national standards that they're going to have at the Department of Education, you're going to end up with more private education, but also more government control of private educational institutions, i.e. fascism. Right, right. That's my fear is that the, the kind of school choice we would have would be the uh, approved choices of uh, the government. And yes. W- look, the, the, the Republicans have been saying get rid of the Department of Education since at least the time of its inception under Carter, and they have been uh, um, unsuccessful in, in doing it because um, uh, some of them, like George W. Bush, have in fact used them to impose their view of what education should be. It's an entire corruption. The, I'd say so at the state and local level as well, but what the federal government is doing um, in being involved in um, K-12 through education, I have no idea. It is completely unjustifiable in my view, and the Republicans should have a consistent policy of just getting the heck out of that business. Exactly, and, and that was one thing that had been floated at a certain point in Trump's you know, campaign was to actually right. eliminate the Department of Education. And then suddenly DeVos comes in and they say, oh, it's, they, they, they actually use this, make American education great again. And the federal government, the federal government cannot make education great. Federal government shouldn't be involved in education. It shouldn't be making anything about education. It should get out of the way. You know, I'm in favor of C. Bradley Thompson's work on this, you know, just completely 
privatize education, get government at all levels, state, federal, whatever, completely yeah. out. But certainly Agreed. federal government. Yeah. So, so federal that's government is doing there is just beyond me because there's absolutely not, you know, with a lot of local school, obviously public education has to be gotten rid of, but at least on the local level, parents have some control in some districts. And so there's some local public schools that are better than say the inner city schools of, you know, Chicago and Los Angeles and New York, but Mm -hmm. with the federal government, Oh my gosh, all they can do is damage. Right. No, exactly. And, and, you know, again, this whole centralized model is, is a very scary thing. And, you know, how is it that they implemented this common core? That's also scary. They did it by bribing the states. They say, look, you know, all this federal money that we've been pumping into your education, we're going to take it away unless you accept common core. And some states have taken it. Some states haven't, but it's been, as far as I can tell, a uniform disaster. Um, I could just add one thing. Probably the Oh, yeah, go right ahead. The single best thing that a Trump administration could do to education would be to eliminate all federal subsidies to higher education. <laughs> if they could yeah. stop subsidizing the colleges and universities and even the, uh, helping helping students attend those universities, I think that would be the, the be- single best thing. <laughs> eliminate the uh, the uh, subsidies to the humanities and uh, you know uh, the, uh, and uh, the arts. <laughs> Get rid of every single subsidy to higher education that exists. Uh, from the federal government. I, I know it's not likely to happen, but the, the great enemies of uh, freedom and constitutional, uh, our constitutional republic are the universities, and they are subsidized uh, by the federal government in having those anti-American um, uh, views, in my view. So uh, higher education is even more pressing, in my view, and the federal government has been corrupting that for quite some time. I, I know there, there, you know, there are a number of conservatives who would agree with you, and I'm hoping that some of those people have Trump's ear on that. Uh, I am too. Have you have you heard, uh, Jim, that next week we are going to be treated with a debate that I had been hoping was going to happen during the course of this last election campaign? Because I had hoped that we would see Cruz as the nominee for the Republican Party and Sanders as the nominee for the Democrats. And then we could see Cruz and Sanders debate on the issues. And in fact, there's going to be a debate next week, Cruz versus Sanders, about Obamacare, just about Obamacare. Had you heard it? That's the, that is what the presidential race should have been, something like that. I don't exactly agree with both men. I'm clearly on Cruz's side, but at least we would have had an ideological debate um, as I've said before uh, on your podcast, I think the big loser when Trump won was ideology. Yes, yes. And so what I'm hoping will happen in this debate, but again, as I said, Cruz has done some things that have disappointed me. One of them was even to be mildly pro-Trump uh, you know, towards the end, plus all these, these other things. Um, I don't know if this debate is going to look like what I had imagined we might have gotten. I, you know, I had this idea that, yeah, Cruz isn't perfect, but at least he seems to represent the principle of individual rights fairly well understood. And then Sanders, on the other hand, seems to be the one who's, you know, very, quote, principled in, in uh, you know, the cause of socialism. 
and that you would see these two have a debate about real ideas. Maybe we're going to see that next week. And it'd be interesting to see that, let the American public see what that could have looked like. If, we, if people, enough people could point to it and say, hey, that's what we could have had in this election, that could be fun. Right. Yeah. Um, and then finally, this is something that I know that you have been involved in in a discussion as well. It's the Jordan Peterson versus Sam Harris discussion about what is true. Right. Did you see that Paul McKeever, an objectivist, has written an extensive blog post in which, I mean, it's just really, I, he, his, his understanding of the issue seems to be pretty solid as far as I can tell, but he, his goal is to point out what it is that Sam Harris was missing so that hopefully the two of them can get back together, Harris and Peterson, and continue their discussion and get on to some of the other subjects. Um, have you seen this post by McKeever? No, I, I'm aware of Paul's posts, and I would anticipate a very thoughtful and, and, and well-informed uh, response, but I've not seen uh, Paul McKeever's response to uh, Sam Harris uh, about that debate. Um, boy, you've now given me something I want to go <laughs> cut a beeline to. to okay. Well, I've got, I've got a link to it in the program notes at the blog. Uh, you know, Again, dontletitgo.com so everybody can check it out. To give you kind of the punchline, he says that the thing that Harris seems to be missing is that Peterson actually doesn't believe in facts of reality existing independently of your senses. He says Peterson, per you know the kind of pragmatist tradition, rejects the idea that you can even consider reality, and I'm quoting from McKeever here, that you can even consider reality other than the experiences in one's own head. So he's saying that Peterson is, is truly pragmatist fundamentally. So that's the teaser that I have to give everybody. Otherwise, people have to go check that and everything else out over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. Uh, Jim, thanks for calling in and for indulging me on this law-filled day. And we're going to get to your book soon, I promise. But we had so much in the way of controversial news stories this week that those trumps. Yes, I look forward to it. Your, those trumps your book. I'm sorry to say. Pun um, <laughs> intended. Of course, of course. Yes, the news is, is so important. Anytime, Amy. Thank you very much, and we'll we'll talk again soon. Everybody else, like I said, go to the blog. Don't let it go. Com. You can follow me on the various social media out there: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everything else. Um, and we will talk again next week. Again, that's 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific Time on Wednesdays. Take care. Is your garage full of old paint that you'll never use? I know mine is. Avocado green, hot pink, antique white. That is a nice shade of white, though. You know, it's easy to recycle your paint all over California. Keep what you need and recycle the rest. Find a drop-off site near you at paintcare.org.